Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Frey. I'm one of the pastors here at PCPC, and um, I'm really, really glad to be with you this morning, um, in, especially because I just need extra caffeine and extra adult conversation this morning, because right after this, I'm taking my two boys camping in Arkansas, and so this is perfect. Um, to just be with adults for one more hour um, before we, you know, hit the road and eat powdered donuts and drink Gatorade and all that stuff. So um, this morning we're continuing the series Encounters with Jesus. We're considering throughout this spring different episodes from the Gospels in which Jesus has some kind of powerful transformative encounter with an individual or a group. And so this morning, we're going to consider Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19. You've got, hopefully, an outline um, or a scripture passage on your table with some questions at the bottom. So you've got the scriptures there. Feel free to also pull it up on phone or iPad, or maybe even some of you have this old-fashioned book thing, um, Bible, printed Bible. You could use that, too, if you really want to, um, if you're adventurous. Let me read the passage, and then I'll pray for our time this morning. Speaking of Jesus, Luke says this, he says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the gift of your scriptures and the gift of life in Jesus. And we thank you this morning for the gift and privilege of time together as brothers in Christ meditating upon your word. We pray that it would sharpen us and strengthen us, that it would convict us in deeper ways of our sin and point us again to Jesus Christ, who is our life. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm not sure what it is about people's physical features, but we as human beings seem fascinated by unique physical features. Fascinated by unique physical features. Have you ever found yourself beginning to stare at someone who looked different? looking a little bit too long, some kind of physical feature that was unique. They were tall. They were fat. They were particularly uh, deformed in some way. Uh, 
as we grow older, we typically learn to conceal that, learn not to look too long in their direction before they see us or others notice that we're staring. Kids, though, if you have kids, you know that they're going to stare and they're going to talk. So I was at Walmart with my kids a few years ago and my youngest son, Samuel, he was probably four at the time, saw this man walking down the, the toiletries aisle with a long beard and long hair down to his waist in the back. And Samuel, riding in the cart, says, Dad, look, a pirate! (laughs) And so we quickly, you know, (laughs) go to the next aisle. We were at Chick-fil-A. I think this was even before that with my daughter. And... um, and she, we're sitting down to eat, and she looks at the table next to ours, and she didn't say it particularly loudly, but uh, enough that some could hear. She said, Dad, the man over there at that table only has one ear. Half of his head, the right side of his head, was completely flat, just skin. Uh, we lived in a military town. I assumed he was a veteran, injured in battle, as so many were. The um, interesting thing, you know, when when kids make those kinds of comments, we teach them not only what's socially acceptable of of, of not looking too long or not staring, um, not speaking too loudly of it, but we teach our people, you know, God makes people different. God makes people different, different shapes and sizes, It's not kind or loving to give too much attention to a person's appearance, whether they look normal or whether they look beautiful or whether they look different. Accidents happen. Accidents happen to people. And we teach our kids that accidents happen. Disabilities are common realities. We teach our children that the most important part of a person is invisible. We teach our children these things. But then we teach our children the story of Zacchaeus, And all we teach them sometimes is that he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And so he had to climb up in this tree. And we do the exact thing that we teach them not to do in other contexts. And Luke, the narrator of this story, seems to fixate for some reason on Zacchaeus' size. The whole front half of the narrative is caught up in his physical features. But the emphasis... Jesus' emphasis in this passage and the concluding emphasis of the passage is not Zacchaeus' unique features. It's not his size. It's not anything visible but the invisible. It's Zacchaeus' scandalous sin. And Jesus' disruption, not just of Zacchaeus' day, but the transformation of Zacchaeus' life completely. When people encounter Jesus, and you've seen this already this semester, when people encounter Jesus, we should expect the unexpected. We should expect the unexpected. This was the case for Zacchaeus. It's also the case for us, too, today. There's two themes woven into this passage I want to highlight this morning, two themes that challenge our expectations about who Jesus saves and about how life changes for those that Jesus saves. 
who Jesus saves and how life changes for those that Jesus saves. First, Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus challenges our expectations about who Jesus saves. In this encounter, we see Jesus saves sinners and saves them completely. Jesus saves sinners completely. You see that in verses 1 through 7, especially. Luke's description of Zacchaeus makes it clear he is doubly sinful. He is sinful in the eyes of God, and he is perceived as being especially sinful in the eyes of his community. All of us here are sinful in the eyes of God, but Zacchaeus was doubly sinful because he was viewed as immoral and outrageously sinful in the eyes of man. Luke tells us why this is the case in verse 2. We may not pick up on it at first, but you see the social hostility towards Zacchaeus building by the time you get to verse 7. But in verse 2, Jesus, uh, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus uh, was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. In our culture, wealth is generally respected. It's generally viewed as a sign of skill or hard work or good decision-making of some way. In the first century, wealth was exactly the opposite. Wealth was viewed with suspicion. It was often viewed, uh, especially in the Jewish community, as a sign of immorality, as a failure to give generously, as a perhaps being guilty of achieving wealth by illegitimate means. If you were living a good life in the first century Jewish culture, if you were living a good life, you simply couldn't become rich or stay rich by any legitimate means. If you were born into wealth, it was assumed that somewhere in your family line, your ancestors had sold out and had gained wealth by sinful means. And so Zacchaeus is not just rich and therefore viewed with suspicion or opposition, but he was rich and known to have achieved his wealth by illegitimate means. He's a tax collector. In fact, Luke says he's a chief tax collector. Now, we don't think of people that work for the IRS, IRS agents, as, you know, the 1%. But Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. This is the only time in the Gospels, the only time in the New Testament that we read about a chief tax collector. Tax collectors in this day worked as employees of the Roman government. They go from village to village, from house to house, telling people how much they owed the government. There was no TurboTax. People couldn't log on to their smartphones or tablets and do their own taxes and see how much they were supposed to pay and then pay the tax man, right? You just got to knock at your door and said, this is what you owe. And tax collectors worked the system. They took advantage of that, often telling people that they owed a little bit more than they really did. Kept the profit, kept the difference for themselves. This was a known practice, um, and especially for Jews, um, there was pain. There was pain surrounding this process. This was unjust. And so this guy... Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He was at the top of this first century pyramid scheme. He was making it rain. 
And he lived in the Las Vegas of Israel in that day. He lived in Jericho. Jericho was this kind of desert resort destination. Herod had built a palace there, um, an immaculate palace with all kinds of aqueducts bringing water from the Jordan River, the Dead Sea, into the city for a series of pools that could be used recreationally. So this city that he's living in, um, the, the means by which he has earned his living, all of these things pointing to Zacchaeus as a shady character in the eyes of the crowds. This passage is just as much an encou- Jesus encountering Zacchaeus as it is Jesus encountering the crowds and their perceptions of Zacchaeus and their perceptions of Jesus as he encounters Zacchaeus. There's multiple connections, multiple encounters happening here. So it would be remarkable if this guy Zacchaeus sought Jesus, and he does. It would be remarkable for this man, this wealthy tax collector in Jericho, of all places, to be seeking Jesus. But the emphasis of the story is not that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, right? That's what the song talks about. But the emphasis of the story is that Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus, not the other way around. That's how the passage ends. Verse 10 is kind of the big, the big giveaway, the big clue to the whole narrative. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. We read this in other places, but we see it highlighted emphasized because of who Zacchaeus is and where this encounter happens. It's so emphasized in this particular narrative. Jesus defies cultural expectations, not only by speaking to Zacchaeus and inviting himself over for dinner, but by then going to his house and leading him into salvation. In his commentary on Luke, James Edwards says, the encounter of Jesus and Zacchaeus is a thematic capstone. Jesus' association with the outcast through the third gospel, this is the the final capstone. You see Jesus encounter sinners of various kinds. You see Jesus encounter other tax collectors. He encounters Matthew in Luke chapter 5. But this narrative, because of who Zacchaeus is, because of where it happens, because of the crowds watching, this is the capstone to the whole process. He's Identifying with Zacchaeus, he's seeking after Zacchaeus, a man classed with murderers and robbers. And so the people's response, the crowd's response in verse 7, we read it. When they saw this happen, when they saw Jesus seeking after Zacchaeus, what do they do? They grumble. They grumble and they say, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. He's not gone to the respected person's house. He's not gone and sought after a likely suspect to become a Christian. He's gone to the house of Zacchaeus, a sinner. And this illustrates a theme, again, of Jesus pursuing the outcast, of Jesus pursuing the lost. Just a few pages earlier, you can flip there in your Bibles if you want, but you read the story, the beginning of Luke chapter 15, you have some awesome parables in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. But then also, before that, the parable of the lost sheep. And the story of Jesus going after the one and leaving the 99. 
going after the 99 that were already a part of the fold and going after the one lost sheep. That's what's happening here practically, historically, in the narrative with Zacchaeus, Jesus seeking after this man. We're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves, but if you look at verse 9 in the passage, we, we read that Zacchaeus becomes a Christian. He becomes a child of God. He professes faith and repentance. It says in verse 9, uh, Jesus pronounces, so we'll take his word for it, Jesus pronounces that Zacchaeus is saved. He says, today salvation has come to this house. He says Zacchaeus, here's the part that would have made the Jews really angry, Zacchaeus is now a son of Abraham. By faith in Jesus, He's become, spiritually speaking, a part of the covenant people of God, this outsider, this outcast, this immoral sinner, this crook and this thief, this man of the world has become a son of Abraham and a child of God. Uh, Our surprise in in Zacchaeus' conversion shines a light on a dark place of our hearts. We may not feel the surprise as powerfully as the Jews did and the crowds did in Jesus' day. We may not feel the shock and the surprise of it, but if we begin to appreciate some of these dynamics of the story, we'll be surprised that Zacchaeus comes to faith, that Zacchaeus repents and believes. And our surprise in Zacchaeus' conversion or in any conversion story of someone who is unexpected to become a Christian Our surprise at it shines a light at a dark place in our hearts. Deep down, many of us tend to believe that some people are unlikely to be saved because they're undeserving of being saved. It's kind of our default. We tend to believe that people are unlikely to be saved. Certain people are unlikely to be saved because they're more undeserving to be saved. For some of us, we may even believe the darker lie that we were likely to be saved because we were more deserving. That we were likely to be saved because we were more deserving. But here's the truth. Here's reality. Here's what God's Word says. Because of sin, everyone is undeserving of being saved. Everyone is undeserving of being saved. No matter where you live, no matter who your parents are, no matter what you do for a living, no matter how much you have stolen or given in your lifetime, everyone is undeserving of being saved. And anyone is likely to be saved. Anyone is likely to be saved in the scheme of grace as it's brought in the life of Jesus Christ and in the mission of Jesus Christ. Anyone is likely to be saved. Jew or Greek, slave or free. Anyone from Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the ends of the earth, the Ethiopian riding his chariot, Saul, the Jewish terrorist, anyone is likely to be saved. That's how grace works. Grace is forever scandalous because it's forever undeserved. It's forever scandalous because it's always undeserved. John Newton Um, who some of you know as the author of the hymn Amazing Grace, a former slave 
trader and ship merchant. John Newton uh, becomes converted, becomes saved, uh, becomes a pastor, and uh, says this about uh, our tendencies to categorize people and our tendencies to view ourselves as more deserving of salvation. He says this, he says, If I ever reach heaven, which is a great thing for a pastor to say, right? We want our pastors to be totally sure, totally convinced. John Newton's a little softer. He says, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some people I had thought not to see there. Kind of like Zacchaeus. Second, to miss some people that I would thought to see there. And then third, he says, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. To find myself there. It is our human nature to assume some people are more likely to make it. Make it to repentance and faith in Christ. To make it to heaven. It's our human nature to think that we are most deserving of that. But the gospel tells us we are all undeserving. The gospel tells us Jesus can save anyone. The gospel tells us of all people, we should doubt ourselves the most. We should see the log in our own eye rather than the speck in our brother's eye. We should be most surprised, most at awe of our own salvation rather than anyone else's because we know the depths of our sin. We should know the depths of our sin and our corruption the most. And so Jesus comes to Zacchaeus. We don't know how it all happens. We don't know the details of all of it. But he comes to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus becomes a Christian. And Jesus is able to save Zacchaeus. Jesus is able to seek and save the lost. He's able to go after people who are unexpected. He's able to go after sinners that are scandalous because Jesus, by his atonement, saves us completely. We contribute nothing to our salvation. By Jesus' atonement on the cross, he pays completely for all our sin. We add nothing to it. And so he's able to seek and save the lost. Second, um, Jesus sanctifies saints comprehensively. He saves sinners completely. And he sanctifies saints comprehensively. We see this in verses 8 through 10. This is where we'll land this morning. Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus challenges our expectations about how life changes for those Jesus saves. Challenges our expectations for how life changes for those that Jesus saves. There's a There's a narrative gap between verse 7 and verse 8. This sounds kind of nerdy. This sounds kind of uh, scholarly for a second. But it's important to see there's a gap in the story between the period after verse 7 and the beginning, the and, of verse 8. The scene changes. Jesus and Zacchaeus are no longer walking the streets of Jericho as they are in verses 1 through 7 surrounded by a crowd. In verses 8 through 10, they are now in Zacchaeus' home, right? Jesus is about to say, salvation has come to this house today. And house being both metaphorical and literal. 
but there's a change of scene. And in verses 8 through 10, this, this may sound just like a random trivia fact at first, but it's going to play into this in an important way, understanding Zacchaeus' change, his heart change, his life change. There's a change of scene, a change of context. Verse 8 and 10. Luke is recording here Jesus' private encounter with Zacchaeus and his family. His private encounter. He's having an intimate conversation. He's talking about how life if Zacchaeus is going to be a follower of Jesus, how life is going to change for Zacchaeus. In verse 8, Zacchaeus initiates and says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus says he's going to change his life in the way he uses his money. He's going to turn away from selfish gain and begin to give generously. We don't know. It would be fascinating to know. We don't know if this was Zacchaeus' idea or Jesus' idea. We don't know if in this conversation privately in Zacchaeus' house that Jesus said, you know what, Zacchaeus? I'm so glad that you're repenting of your sin and placing your faith in me, but there's this issue of how you've earned your wealth. There's this issue of your career. You've got to change. We don't know if that was the conversation or if Zacchaeus simply convicted by the Holy Spirit initiated this. Either way, the Spirit is at work, compelling Zacchaeus to change his life, particularly in the area of money. So uh, this rich man was planning to divest himself of half of his possessions, half of what he owned, property, accounts, Whatever it was, half of it he was going to get rid of. He was going to give away. And then to those he had stolen from, to those he had defrauded, he was going to repay them fourfold. That may sound like just a a random, um, kind of exaggerated claim. Jesus, I'm just going to to pay everyone back uh, four times, right? But this is actually, if you look at the Old Testament, this is the required repayment if you had stolen something from your neighbor. If you had stolen a sheep or even borrowed a sheep and lost it in ancient Israel, you had to return to your neighbor four sheep. So Zacchaeus and Jesus having this conversation of what does repayment look like? What does restitution look like? What does it look like to make amends for my sin? What does it look like to change? They go to the Old Testament and there's this fourfold repayment For his sin. By repaying, Zacchaeus was making amends. He was repairing the damage his sin had caused. He was turning away from his sin. By divesting himself, then by getting rid of half of what he owns, Zacchaeus was pursuing righteousness. He was turning towards a walk in new life, in new Christ. He was reorienting, not just turning away from past practice, but reorienting and walking towards paths of righteousness. This turning away from sin, turning towards righteousness, both are involved in our repentance. Some of you might know that uh, in 2013, my wife enrolled in uh, a rehab. Um, And for a year then, um, basically, um, to put it crassly, kind of flunking out of rehab, 
um, due to prescription drug addiction, uh, spent a year in re a residential recovery home. Um, we were separated during that year. It was painful, but it was used by God in incredible ways in her life and in my life to reveal sin, to reveal dysfunction in our relationship, and to bring her and me um, individually to, to repentance, um, to restoration physically in our marriage. Um, it was a painful season, but it was used by God in amazing ways. During that year, my wife went to two, sometimes three AA meetings a day. Had to read the big book. Um, I went sometimes, I went and visited her twice. Um, and so occasionally went to AA with her when I was visiting. Um, went to Al-Anon. Al-Anon, for those of you who are in recovery or know about recovery, Al-Anon is the 12-step the program that's kind of the, the parallel to AA, to Alcoholics Anonymous, the parallel for uh, family members and friends of those who are alcoholics or addicts. Um, and you work the same 12 steps, um, but it's oriented around how you are affected by their addiction or alcoholism, um, how you maybe even have contributed to it, um, believing that it's a family sin, a family disease. The eighth and ninth steps of AA and Al-Anon talk about making amends, making amends. The eighth step says this, uh, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And step nine we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. These are good steps. These are good things. These are biblical things. Making amends, repaying, giving restitution. But they are less than half of the biblical picture of what repentance looks like. They're less than half. They are good. They are not wrong. But they are less than half. Because it's not just making amends to people but towards God, most significantly. Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. That's what David says. But then also, it's not just repairing damage done by sin, turning away from old vices and practices, but turning towards new things, pursuing what is good and true and noble and excellent and praiseworthy. And so you see this pattern throughout, especially Paul's letters. Colossians 3, as an example, where he talks about putting off old sins and putting on new virtues. Repentance involves both, both turning away and turning towards. The big kind of Bible word, theology word we use for this is sanctification. Sanctification, which the Westminster Catechism defines as this. It says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live unto righteousness. You hear the language there at the end. Dying to sin, living unto righteousness. We shouldn't assume that Zacchaeus' generosity was the only layer of his life to change. He probably also had to change his job or at least change the way he did his job. Now a saint, 
God was changing every part of Zacchaeus' life, turning away from evil, pursuing righteousness. And for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, that that first line from the catechism is true. If we are in Christ, God is renewing us in the whole man after his image. There is no corner, there is no sphere, there is no area of our lives that is off limits to God's redeeming power. There is no part of our lives that we can say, it is impossible for God to change me in this area. Or I do not need to change in this area. God is after our renewal, our sanctification, our purification, our change in every area of our life. Now, Jesus saves us completely. He is our entire salvation. It is not the case that Jesus will sanctify us completely in this life. Rather, the language is he sanctifies us comprehensively in every part. It's not until heaven that we are glorified. It's not until heaven that we are made perfect. All of us continue battling against sin. Romans chapter 7, Paul illustrates that. But comprehensively, Jesus is at work changing every part of who we are. Every sphere, every area is being changed. We're accustomed to thinking about Jesus changing a few obvious parts of our lives. Our public morality, what people see. Our Sunday schedule, going to church. Our family life. These are kind of the common things that we tend to associate with Christians and with Christianity, that there's some change, some improvement, some respectability in those three areas. But the work of sanctification in our lives, the work of sanctification in Zacchaeus' life went deeper. The conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus was private. And if Jesus heard Zacchaeus say, I'm going to give all this money away, what would Jesus say about how he should do that? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Don't do it publicly. Do it privately. Don't make a show of it. Do it without other people even knowing. Jesus was after this significant but unseen area of Zacchaeus' life. What about the less obvious, less traditional parts of our lives? What about our private morality? Not just what people see but what's visible only to God or to those closest to us. What about our weekday schedule? How are the days of our week changing? Now, can't say that without commending you all for being here on a Tuesday morning. This is not Sunday, right? But how else is our weekday schedule, our weekday activities, the values of our week changing because of our faith in Jesus Christ and because of God's sanctification of us? What about the life, not only of our family, but our neighborhood? How are our neighbors being changed by us? What about our workplace? What about our places of recreation? These are deep and broad places of our lives where we would prefer that God doesn't disrupt us, that we could just keep the status quo, that we would prefer not to change. Perhaps there's an area of your life where you've been thinking in recent months or weeks or you're thinking about this morning 
an area of your life, some corner of your life where you believe either, number one, I don't need to change, or number two, I can't, even if I wanted to. That the sin is too strong, it runs too deep, it's got too much power. God gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to change every part of our lives. He's given us His Word, He's given us His Spirit, He's given us each other. And so this morning, um, this morning, I'd encourage you as our tables discuss, be courageously honest with one another. Courageously honest, sharing stories of rescue, praying earnestly for God to do this work that he's been doing in Zacchaeus of saving him completely, of sanctifying him comprehensively. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that in Christ we can know the joy of salvation. Father, we pray that that our hearts as a church would reflect Jesus' heart, that we would seek and seek to have you save the lost. Father, may our hearts and our lives reflect Zacchaeus' life. May we be people who are continually renewed, continually purified, sometimes in hard ways, but always in joyful ways by the power of the Spirit at work within us. Father, show us our sin. Show us where we can change. By the power of the Spirit, give us that ability and that hope and that desire, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.